Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Discover what's possible when people impacted by autism inspire change and build community. Together with the Global Autism Project, here's your host, Rachel Harmon. Hello, everyone. Today's guests are Brandy Collins and Crystal Thompson. Brandy is the founder and owner of Guiding Light Concepts, an autism center in Killeen, Texas. She is a board-certified behavior analyst, or BCBA, and a certified brain injury specialist with over 12 years of counseling experience. Brandy has dedicated her life to advocating for children and young adults in her community. Crystal is the founder and owner of Believe Autism in Jacksonville, Florida. Also a BCBA, Crystal combines her passion to help children with autism and their families with her love for dance, as well as provides various opportunities through art classes, tutoring, and support groups. Brandy and Crystal are members of our SkillCore alumni community, having traveled with the Global Autism Project on SkillCore volunteer trips to several of our partner sites including Sorem in India and Rumatiara in Indonesia, which you may remember from Episodes 6 and 16. The Global Autism Project provides sustainable, clinical, administrative, and leadership training to autism centers seeking guidance. SkillCore is an opportunity for self-advocates and professionals to travel to our partner sites around the world and work directly with their local teachers and therapists. For more information about our SkillCore program, please listen to Episode 4, featuring a roundtable discussion with three members of our community. As a SkillCore alum myself, it was really fun to hear Brandy and Crystal describe how they've grown both professionally and personally from participating in our volunteer trips. We talk about their takeaways on supervision, teamwork, and cultural humility. By the way, you'll hear us mention Leadership Academy, which is a workshop our organization provides to prepare future SkillCore trip leaders. Another term I use in the interview is RBT, which stands for Registered Behavior Technician. This is the direct care level position that usually works one-on-one with clients. Back to today's guests, Brandy and Crystal candidly share their experiences as Black women in the field of applied behavior analysis their views on how the stigma around disabilities makes it harder for families in under-resourced areas to access services, and some of their ideas to make the field more diverse. In this episode, discover what's possible when cultural humility prompts curiosity and understanding. For more information about today's guests, please visit our show notes at autismknowsnoborders.com. And now, I present you... Brandy Collins and Crystal Thompson. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Autism Knows No Borders. Today, we have two very special guests, Crystal Thompson and Brandy Collins, who are both strong leaders, not only in our SkillCore community, but also in their own communities. Welcome to the show, Crystal and Brandy. Thank, Thank you. you. Let's start with a brief introduction of your background. How did you begin working with the autistic population, and what are you up to now? Brandy, would you like to start us off? Okay. My background is a little interesting. I began working with adults 
in the military, actually. I worked in an urgent care triage clinic, and I worked with homicidal and suicidal service members for several years. And ultimately, there was a government shutdown. And when there was a government shutdown, it led to like a little bit of a transition for me as a, I was a government employee at the time. When I moved to Kentucky, when I moved to Kentucky, um, that's when I first learned about ABA and autism and I switched gears. It was such a breath of fresh air to go back and work with children versus working with adults and to be a part of all of their milestones that they were making. I mean, you know, starting with them as young as two and three years old. So once I got a little taste of it, I was like, you know, this is definitely where I want to be. This felt like home and I could see the impact that I was having not only on the child, but the family and the community as a whole. And so I've been in love with it ever since. And I've been working in the field since 2012. Great. And what are you doing now? Currently, I own an ABA center in Colleen, Texas. The name of the center is Guided Light Concepts. And so we offer full day and part day care here. And that's pretty much what I'm doing. (laughs) All right. Crystal and you? I started in the field, I mean, a long time ago, I feel like. My undergrad in college was international business and finance. And I was going through like the different internships. I didn't like it. One of my friends came to me and told me about a private school that was working with children with autism. She told me more about it. It was very interesting. So I went, had the interview, got the job actually. And I started as like a co-teacher in like a classroom with, I want to say like six kids with autism. It was like a two to one ratio. And then like the co-teacher or the lead teacher. Eventually, after a while, I got promoted to lead teacher and they started talking about like the BCBA and all this stuff. And I was like, what's that? So (laughs) um, (laughs) I had no idea what it was. So I researched it a little bit, um, decided to go back, get my master's, got certified. I stayed there for a little while longer. And then I moved to Florida. I'm still in the field. And then I was just like, you know, I was working with the family and they were saying, I want my kid to participate in like these different extracurricular activities, but they're not able to for whatever reason, whether they've gotten kicked out of a program or the director was just like, I don't know how to work with your child. So I started my company, Believe Autism, at first as just a dance movement and art program for kids with special needs, including their siblings and friends. And then from there, it went on to actually like adding some tutoring. And then from there, I was like, you know what, I can probably branch into, you know, providing ABA services like independently. And so I started doing that. I've got a few clients. I have a couple RBTs and we're right now we're just doing in-home services. Cool. And you've both been very involved in different ways with our work at the Global Autism Project. Crystal, I think you're one of our veteran leaders that's been active the longest. Yeah. How many trips have you been on and how many have you led? Off the top of my head, I'm going to say like 11 to 12 trips. Yeah. Wow. 
Yeah. <laughs> so like, this is literally the longest that I've been in the United States at one time in probably like the last four years. And it's really bothering me because I've got the travel <laughs> bug again. Yeah, I feel you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And then I've probably led about half of those or a little over half of those I've led. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. I, I mean, I love everything that the project is doing. Cool. And Brandy, you're a little bit newer. You went to India last fall, actually with Cassie, our director of outreach, and she hasn't stopped raving about you since. (laughs) I absolutely love Cassie. And I'm so glad that I got to go on that trip with her as well to a place that she loved because experiencing something through the loving eyes of someone while they have such an endearment, it it was an amazing opportunity for me. And so I was very glad that I got to go as well as I was so excited by all of my experiences that I had that after coming back, I decided to sponsor additional teams. And so I partnered because I want other people to experience all that global autism has to offer. I truly believe in everything that you guys are doing. Yeah. Thank you for that sponsorship, by the way. And also you attended the Big Leadership Academy last January. That's actually where we first met. Yes. That Leadership Academy was, at first off, it was awesome. (laughs) It came in in at a perfect time, Um, you know, just coming off the Christmas holidays. And it's like, you got to get back into the gear of like professionalism and getting back to work. And it was just refreshing. It really like when you're about to begin the race that is the year, it was a, a great starting point. Mm-hmm. We went over so many different leadership aspects and I identified areas of weakness that I didn't even realize were an area of weakness for me. So I definitely experienced growth, definitely experienced a lot of growth and was able to come back and immediately implement it at my center. Um, and we still use those tools today. <laughs> cool. I definitely want to get into those details. And I just hope that we can all travel again soon, get me back too. into the field. Me I know. Too. We had planned out all of the leaders for 2020 and 2021, too. It's crazy to think about that now we just don't really know. But sitting tight, waiting. Yeah. So what have you both learned about yourselves from doing SkillCore? Let's start with what you've learned about yourself personally, and then we'll talk about how you've grown professionally. Crystal, do you want to start us off on this one? Gosh, um, I've been traveling with the project since 2013 was my first trip. And I feel personally, I've just developed more confidence like in myself. And I've been in some really crazy situations in the, in the different countries working with the different people. And outside of just professionally, like you've learned to become more flexible. A lot of growing pains and like cultural adjustments that I feel like I've had to make but I've been able to take that and bring it back home with me. And I can just say I've just grown and developed and has been able to become more compassionate and empathetic towards other people. I feel like more so than I was in the past. And just like a bigger understanding of looking at where somebody's coming from versus just taking things on a personal level and just stepping back and listening. Because when you're working with such different types of people, that you may or may not ever see again, or that you may develop a friendship or a closer bond with, you just really have to learn to put your differences aside and just be open 
and vulnerable a word that Cassie likes to use, (laughs) (laughs) Um, which is a very positive word. It's kind of hard to encompass what, seven years into just a few sentences, so. Right. And with each trip, did you learn something new about yourself every time? Yes, every trip. Because I never traveled with anybody twice. So on all of those trips, it was like someone new. I've been to several countries twice. So seeing myself the first time I went versus like the second time I went, or maybe even the third time I went, It was just a moment to like really like be proud of yourself. Yeah. Brandy, how about you? Let me start by giving just a a little bit of background. I have been married for 21 years and my husband was in the military and he retired. And so I spent so many years kind of following kind of behind his career and uprooting myself and restarting over and starting over in multiple states. (laughs) So this was my first trip by myself. This was my first travel without him. And let me tell you, my prompt dependence was crazy. (laughs) 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 You know, um, we actually came to New York a couple of days early, scouted out everything, mapped out how we get to the store. Like everything had been, you know written out exactly this is what you need to do how and you need to make a new friend and thank goodness I did <laughs> my team ended up being I got an amazing team but just personally like stepping out on faith like I've always been confident in my professional but I wasn't as confident in my personal like could I go out and really stand on my own and to have this come right um you know so shortly after I just stepped out on my own and opened up my own business and those things where it's me and I need to lean on me and I need to learn more about me that was really amazing so just learning more cultural awareness I didn't realize how little cultural awareness I had because of my ethnic backgrounds. I just assumed, hey, my family are from other countries. And so therefore I already know, I know what it's like to be. And then I realized I really didn't. And Mm -hmm. I wasn't used to going somewhere and me being a guest and making sure that I didn't offend or violate or step on a toe, you know, how it is harder for people when they come over. So just being more awareness of how much harder you have to try when you're in something new was new for me. My communication skills, I felt like I was a great communicator, but we learned a lot um, through work being put on a team that was as diverse as it was. And that was the first time that I wasn't the leader of a team. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So Interesting. Yeah. That was like, whoa, I'm not leading. (laughs) Um, Okay. How does this work? So (laughs) I jumped on it and just really seeing how you put puzzle pieces together and bring out everyone's strength and, you know, when to lead and when to follow. That was a big, that was huge for me. Learning conflict resolution where you could see like, hey, we're in a team and we're making a team decision and we want to voice our opinions, but make sure that our opinions that are different don't turn to conflict. So how to really navigate like voicing our opinions and giving the background as to why we've made that opinion, like why professionally or personally, this is why I think it should be this way and not seeing that through the lens of conflict, seeing that through the lens of growth. Right. That was new for me. So I had a lot of personal growth and it really just inspired me to do more and to learn more. In India, we were in Chandigarh. The school 
Shoreham, it has such a diverse levels of age groups and severity levels and things there that it really prompted me to say, hey, I need to go back and finish this doctorate in developmental psychology. There's some information gap that I could go back. And if I knew that, how much more of an expert would I be? So professionally, it inspired me as well to go back. And so I am back in and trucking on along. Yeah. (laughs) So so many great things happened personally and professionally from my time with Global Autism. How have you applied the leadership skills that you've learned into your daily work? So Crystal, I know you've led a lot of trips, but Brandy, you also just came back from Leadership Academy. Crystal, do you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. As far as like the leadership skills I've learned or I've taken from the trips, again, it just goes back to being able to work with different types of people and being flexible, listening to everyone and coming up with a solution or a plan that's going to best fit the team. And not making anyone feel left out or like they're not being heard. I think that's really important is to make sure that everybody feels like their voice and their opinion and how they feel is being taken into consideration and really trying to find a common ground. Not everyone's going to be happy, unfortunately, but at least everyone can feel like, okay, Crystal heard me. And hopefully they can understand like the reason why certain decisions were made. I think that is one thing that I've definitely taken from the trips. I just think overall, you know, I don't think a leader is someone that's going to like tell people what to do, but you work with the people that you're leading. Um, And I've never been like a type of a bossy person or demanding things from other people, but I am a strong believer in letting people kind of grow and develop at their own pace and then kind of giving like a little nudge and letting them know, helping them like also believe in themselves. Like you can do this. You're a strong person. You're a great RBT. You're a great BCBA. You're as a parent, you're doing really well. So how can we get you to where you want to be? What are your goals and what's the steps that we can take to get you to that point? Yeah. Brandy, do you have anything to add? So the Leadership Academy planted a seed in me that I didn't even know needed to be planted. One thing, I definitely did not have a (laughs) Mm self-awareness. And it planted a seed in me that was like, hey, you need to stay committed to a growth mindset. And what I mean by the growth mindset is that, you know, in my upbringing, the goal was always to like make it to the top, to earn that degree, to have this accomplishment, to get this position and, you know, make it to there. This is the goal. And once you get to the goal, there really wasn't much of a plan after the goal, like the plan for how do I stay in this position? How do I stay relevant? How do I inspire other people to grow with me? How do I make sure that growth is around me at all times, that even at times when I'm resisting growth, there's someone to say, hey, Brandy, grow up. We're going in this direction. Come with me in this direction. So really being able to be around people to say, hey, our strengths are so different but I need your strength and you need my strength. And together, something really powerful is going to come out of this. And I would never know that I needed that strength if I didn't expose myself to people who had a different type of strength than me. You know, so my biggest takeaway from the Leadership Academy was the growth mindset and that 
a lot of people, when they're in the programs, you'll hear people, I want to become a BCBA, I want to become a BCBA, but they don't really have the the why, you know, the why and the understanding that once you become a BCBA, you also have to continue to grow. You have to learn how to be a supervisor. You have to learn how to do parent training. You have to learn how to motivate people. You have to learn how to be human resources. You have to learn how to be billing and coding. You have to learn how to be marketing. Right. It's, it's so many jobs. Like at the title of when you get become a BCBA, you're actually expected to wear 10 hats. And all of those hats aren't going to be a good hat for you, you know? And so you need to delegate. So if you don't have delegation skills and you don't have self-awareness to know where your strength or your weaknesses are, that's going to be the hill you're going to die on. You might die on your marketing. You might die on your communication skills. When If I already know that that's a weakness, I could delegate someone else to take care of my marketing and those things for me. And I make sure that I'm supporting that person so that we have a mutually beneficial relationship. So really... What I've taken away from that Leadership Academy and what I immediately came back and put into Guiding Light Concepts has come to fruition in ways I could have never dreamed of. And it came to fruition, not just for me, for the people that are around me. You know, I'm constantly having people saying, hey, Brandy, I never would have thought of going in that direction until you mentioned this and you kind of planted that seed. So from the seeds that were planted and watered in me, I have gone to plant and water in others. And I'm just excited about all that's continuing to happen around me, even in this pandemic, which is surprising. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And you're both business owners. So it's interesting to hear your different perspectives. Actually, Crystal, your company just had its six-year anniversary. Oh, So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Totally excited about that. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. What have you learned about cultural humility from doing SkillCore and how has this influenced your work now? So the very first SkillCore trip that I went on way back in 2013, it was like a forever ago. One thing I loved is that we did a cultural sensitivity workshop. And one thing that I remember it said was that we think of culture as just where someone, like the country that they're from. But one thing that I took from this workshop is that when you walk into someone's home, that's also their culture. Mm-hmm. And so it's also being sensitive and understanding where they're coming from and, and, and building a rapport, not just with the kid. You don't just pair with the kid, but you also pair and build a rapport with the fam- the entire family, whoever's under that roof. So each time that I've like met a new family, or have a new like dance class or an art class or something, I always look at where those people are coming from and adjust, not necessarily like myself, but sometimes you have to adjust your approach. And like for an example, there was one family I was working with a while back and the cutest, sweetest little boy, the family was Dominican. And every single day I walked into their house, she was trying to give me food. (laughs) she was like here I know you work all day and you're driving around you're not able to stop so here 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 and you know there's a thing where we don't accept gifts or certain things right and so the first few times I accepted because I realized this is part of her saying thank you and welcoming into her home and then after that it was just kind of like oh you know it's fine I'm good I ate but I wanted to not cut off her way of reaching out to me 
from the very beginning and just saying, no, I can't accept that because I just felt like I didn't know how they were going to take it as if I was trying to put a wall up and it obviously you're going to be professional, but on some level, your goal is to develop a good working relationship with your families that you're with. And part of that is being flexible and being able to understand someone culturally. It's not always like that in every house I go into. So it's kind of like the first few times you're just kind of filling them out and seeing how they run things and how they do things and the parent dynamics. It's so many things that go into this field and stepping to someone's home or even someone stepping into a clinic space. Yeah. Brandy? For me, where I'm located right now is by a military base. It's one of the largest army bases. So it's in Fort Hood, Texas. And so we have a very, very diverse population here. And so we are constantly in a position where we're working with families where English is not their first and or second language. We've gotten a wide, you know, variety of kids who have spent many of their years in a different country and now come here as well as just got an autism diagnosis. So Double, a double thing. They are learning as much about the United States as we are trying to learn from their culture. And then they're trying to learn about the autism culture because within the last year or so, I realized, hey, there's a culture within the autism community of like what's acceptable and what's unacceptable. These social norms that are, you know, is the puzzle piece a good thing to use today? Or this, you know, mm-hmm. there's constant ways, so many, many ways to step on toes even within our own community. So I make sure that when I bring a new client on, because we are center-based, we do do a few interviews before we accept the client to learn more about the families. And I do at least two with the parents to kind of get to know them, to learn more about their background, to really delve into what is their goal, what would they like their outcome for care to be. So that I can really make sure that we're on the same page, we're on the same understanding of what it is that I will attempt to deliver and that everyone is flexible in what their ultimate goals are. So as far as the culture humility, I take taking the time to actually know the family to make sure that we have enough background information before we accept their child in, I think gives us a better opportunity to make sure that we don't step on toes or do anything inadvertently. And we build that rapport with them because because we are center-based, the children are left here. They're either here for four-hour days or seven-hour days. So, you know, you have that one window to kind of meet with the families, and it's very easy to make a mistake. So I do think that it's really important to delve into developing those rapports. Yeah. And using our number one tool that we've learned from Skill Corps, which is the Socratic approach. Yes. Right? Like if you're <laughs> yes. ever in doubt, just ask a question. If you don't know yes. how they want to be referred to as a person, just ask them how they feel about it. Yes. Mm-hmm. This might be a good segue to talk about race issues. What are your experiences being a Black woman in this field? So I will tell you, for me, my experience of being a Black woman in this field, it's been very interesting. It's been complex. I have been placed in situations where I need to upfront always start with all my credentials. And even when I have a credential, I need to explain. Uh, it's almost, I'm very, I feel very interviewed. 
as compared to like counterparts that are also are in the same field. So I feel a lot of pressure to make sure that people know that, hey, I'm very qualified. And in areas that are an area of weakness, I'm actively working to learn to develop those skills. So for me, I feel a lot more pressure to be a cut above, to be two steps ahead, to make sure that I'm always extremely warm and welcoming. I mean, literally, when you come in our place, we have a fireplace and it smells like baked cookies and all of these things, not just to make people feel warm and fuzzy, but just to almost put the air out like, hey, I come in peace. I am not any stereotype that's often out there about Black women or professional Black women. Like, I'm not an angry Black woman. I'm not a condescending. I'm not a, you know, many of the stereotypes that are out there, I feel like I always have to wear this big sign that says, I come in peace. I'm a good person. I love the children. You know, I have the education. And that makes it a little harder because then you can't have a bad day. Or you can't have a, someone said something and I give a quick response. You know, I always need to be very measured in my response. I need to be very measured in my tone. I need to proofread my emails more times than other people do, just to make sure that there is literally no emotion in the email. And then now I'm to the point where like, oh, maybe it sounds so emotionless. You need to go back and put a little. <laughs> 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 so it's this, it's weird balancing act of, um, Constantly feeling the need to prove the worthiness to be in the room that I'm in and then constantly making sure that when I'm in the room, that people know that I'm in the room as an individual. I'm not in the room representing a race, mm-hmm. you know, because I may have a human moment and I would hate for my human moment to be the representative of the race or representative of other African-American women in this field. How does that feel for you? Oh, that feels very pressured, um, overwhelming. I'm sure that that's led to a lot of my gastro or my stomach is, you know, constantly in knots and I need to think or double think before I speak because, you know, I, I definitely feel the pressure that someone's waiting for that gotcha moment, you know, that gotcha moment. Mm-hmm. And as we can see, we live in like as present times right now, we're living in such a council culture where like oh she did it counselor find Mm -hmm. her job tell everybody we're done and you know I don't want to be done (laughs) I don't want to be counselor right (laughs) I don't want you know I want to be able to talk and I want to be able to say hey such and such happened and this is my view on it and those things and I feel muzzled in a large sense I feel very muzzled or I feel like I need to be discreet in my support of endeavors just to make sure that it doesn't ruffle any type of feathers. So it it is very pressured. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Mm -hmm. Crystal, what are your experiences being a Black woman in this field? So the last couple of days, I've been trying to figure out if I know any other Black BCBA women BCBAs in Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm going through like my Rolodex of people and I'm just like, wow, there's not a lot of us. One, there's not a lot of us in the field. I just recently found a group on LinkedIn. Hopefully I don't butcher their name, but it's Black Behavior Analyst or something like that. Baba. Baba, yes. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And actually tomorrow, July 1st, is their 
membership. Yes. Of, like with their membership. So I have it on my calendar yes. to like jump on that <laughs> just because like we, I want to feel like a sense of community because one, like being a small business owner here in Jacksonville, Florida, and then having just a few, you know, just a couple like employees and then we're doing in home. So it's not like we've got that space to go to and like really connect with each other. You kind of feel very separated from the people that you're working with because you're either in a car, you're at the house, you're then jumping over here. And it's just, I don't really have always that sense of community. And then going to people's homes, there's been times that have crossed my head or thoughts that have crossed my head. Like, are they going to see me as a behavior analyst or are they going to see me as a black woman walking into their house? Like, Obviously, they're going to see me as a black woman, but what are they going to take away from our conversation? And, you know, Brandy, I can attest to feeling like you do have to have everything in order. (laughs) Sometimes when you walk, like you, I make sure my intake documents are completely together. It's just, I feel like I have to always, you do always want to put your best foot forward in any situation, but it's like, like she said, you kind of have to be well ahead of everyone else in order to feel that acceptance. One story I have, I went to a family. It was my first time going to their house. The address was really weird and I wasn't sure exactly where I was going. And I went a little further past their house. Like their house was like off in the distance. Some trees were in front, so I couldn't see it because I wasn't familiar with the area and I get to the house that's next to theirs. And I asked them, you know, I'm looking for this. And they were very like, what are you doing on my property? What are you doing here? I'm like, I'm so sorry. This is the address that I'm looking for. And they're like, didn't you see the no trespassing signs? And I said, I apologize. This is the number that I'm looking for. Can you tell me how to get there? And they're like, just back up and go to the next house. And so when I pulled out of their driveway, I saw it because like I said, it was back in the whale, back in the cut. So a few weeks later, maybe like a month or so later, after my client's mom and I started to develop a good relationship, she told me that the neighbor came over there and was like, there was this black girl that drove up into our driveway. And it was just the things, I'm not going to repeat the things that she said that they said, but it did, it, it did not make me feel good where it was just a simple, I was like, I'm so sorry that you even, they even had to say anything to you. I was looking for your house. I couldn't find it. She's like, I know our house is really hard to find when you're coming here for the first time. And so it's kind of like when I'm going to these houses, like I don't want to feel like I have to. Sometimes I feel like I need to say, hi, my name is Crystal Thompson. I'm, you know, calling you back about your inquiry for ABA services. And by the way, I'm a black American. Like, so you're not surprised when I walk into your house. I don't know. It's difficult. It's difficult because there's just not a lot of Black Americans in this field in general. Not that I have encountered. Like, I've done, like, presentations at FABA and, uh, you know, I've gone to a couple other, like, conferences. And it always feels good to see someone that looks like me in the room as well. I've grown up around all different types of people, but it's just a good feeling to know that 
we're also breaking into a field that is helping so many different people and that we can, I guess, change the narrative about the Black person in a professional setting and then being able to have your own business. Because there was one place that I went and they were like, oh, what company do you work for? And I said, it's my business. Um, I'm working for myself. I'm independent. And they were just like, oh. And then carried on with their other conversations. Like, I don't, it was just, it's not always warm and welcoming. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But then there are instances where I feel like my skin color and who I, and that part of me, obviously it's noticed, but it doesn't play a factor into where I'm at. And I heard something a while ago that says every table that you're sitting at, that there's a seat for you there. So this is the table that I'm at and this is the seat that I'm taking. And yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. I was just going to add, Crystal, that one of the very first things that my husband, um, and I, I like literally I cried about this. It's just a fold out table. It's really nothing fancy. But to me, it was the most precious gift that he's given me with the exception of our children. <laughs> but um, <laughs> he bought me a table. Uh, we were going to be doing a lot of vendor events when we first opened. And when he gave me the table, he said, you know, I bought you this table, uh, my love, because I don't ever want you asking for a seat at someone else's table. When you show up, Miss Collins, you're going to show up with your own table. And I want oh. people to come to your table. Oh, I was like, waterworks. <laughs> <laughs> That's so sweet. Yeah. So I pull that little table out every, you know, where it's a folding <laughs> table. You know, it's like $20, but I love that little table. <laughs> it's the meaning behind the table. You it know? was, yeah. right? You know? Yeah. So when I open it, it means something huge to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Crystal, I know you just shared a couple of stories, but have you ever felt discriminated against in the workplace, either overtly or covertly, whether with colleagues that you work with or directly from the families? I'm going to say no. The few places that I have worked before I started my business, everyone was extremely welcoming. There wasn't ever a situation where, as far as like work or directly with my clients, where I felt any type of tension, I guess I could say, between anyone. It's just, like I said, it's just been within like the last like few years where I just noticed a little bit more things because now I'm in like a different role. Before I was, yes, a BCBA working for another company, but now I'm a BCBA clinical director, all the hats of my own company. And I think I'm just more aware of different possible situations and just being able to prepare myself professionally, personally, and emotionally for anything that may or may not come my way. Like I said, the only big issue that I had was that time where I went to the wrong house and then at this other location where they, you almost kind of expect when you say, oh yeah, I have my own business. Oh, well, what is it? What do you do? What's the name of it? And it was just kind of an O and turned and walked away. And even at the same location, it's not a, I don't want to throw out the race card um, at all. But it's sometimes feels like we, me and some of the other people, we, there's just nothing to talk about. It just feels like, and it's, 
and it's, I don't know if it's coming from me of something that I'm putting off, like already having my guard up. So it's kind of like you have to examine yourself and like dig deep and feel like, is there anything in me that could be coming off that way? Or is it just simply like you're stepping into our culture, what we already have happening and we're just going to, we're just going to let you stay on the outside. So it's a hard feeling to explain, but it's definitely a, I can't say it's uncomfortable. It's just something that it's, it's another thing to be aware of that is borderline exhausting some days. Brandy, how about you? So I, I have a little twist on this. My first major encounter that like really affected me and it was the first time, but it has happened several times since then where I know for a fact that there was discrimination against me. It actually came from my own community. Mm-hmm. I tend to get it a lot more from my own community, which is interesting in itself. And that just has so much more deeper issues that come apart with that. But yes, um, <laughs> where the family, they had another, you know, BCBA that was working with them and she was getting ready to move. They were military as well. So it was, they call that a PCS, a permanent change of station. So they were moving to another state. I was coming on board to work with and I was going to take over the client. It made sense. I lived really close by. This was an in-home company. Kid was in school. Like everything fit to where and I had the availability to give the maximum amount of hours. So not only was this kid going to continue to get care, they were going to get direct care from a BCBA and have a BCBA in the school with them. Like all of the things that they actually wanted was me. And the family had an extreme reaction to me coming in and directly said, you know, hey, were you assigned to my child because you're Black? Did they just put you here because you're Black? I mean, like, it threw me. We already, the company already sent like biographies and those things. So they already kind of knew who I was, what my background was. The the parent was like, hey, I want to personally meet. Um, this was in Virginia at the time. Um, I'm going to personally meet them. And so I had to go drive to one of the parents' jobs, which was like an hour away, basically to be interviewed. And I thought I was going in for something receptive. I had no idea that they had an emotional attachment to the person that was before and that they had not been informed that this was just regular life. People were moving away and I was coming in. There was no affront. There was no nothing, you know? And so I went in with one intention of like, hello, hi, I'm Brandy. And thinking that I was going to do my Brandy thing only to be received as, you know, I, I took it as humiliating. I took it as an attack and a front. And I mean, it was directly asked, you know, is it because you're black and because my child is black? Is it because it's a predominantly black school and the black school is having a problem with the other person because that person was non-black? If there was issues at the school, I knew nothing about that. And instead of me getting a fresh start as I was coming in, I came in eating to like kind of, again, say, hey, I come in peace. I mean no harm. I'm a BCBA. I love children and I will give your child my all. Like, give me a chance to work with your kid. So it kind of went, there were some emails and things. And after, you know, a few moments, I just was like on the drive back. I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to gracefully step away. And I went to the company owner and let her know, hey, whoa, that's you know, if they have that sort of emotion in him, it's probably for the best that I step aside. Now, I, me fully knowing that me stepping aside meant that this kid would not get care. 
like there wasn't someone else to fill in, it would be at least 120 days before another person could come on and take that load. And in that instance, I kind of chose myself to say, I'm not, because this is like an in-home and in their space. It'd be different if it was in-center, then I could say, hey, put that in its proper box and work. But I can't say that I'm willing to step in someone's home when I know I'm not welcome. I know that I'm being looked at through a lens that's like, too intense right now. Mm-hmm. So if I have any human error, it's going to be really magnified. And uh, so that really kind of affected me. So I make sure now that I put such an effort into letting people know like who I am and what I stand for well before their kid gets here with links and with the biographies and with, you know, with all of those things to try to mitigate. So it's like, hey, if I don't fit in your box, please let me know before we do a face-to-face because that's really hurtful Mm. and it affected my confidence. So, you know, a lot. I'm sorry that happened to you. Of course, that family in the end came back once they realized like, hey, my child's not going to get services. They came back. But after that, in that in-between, I had already accepted another gig and I just wasn't going to go back. Like we couldn't, we couldn't repause it. Um, you feel the conflict then it's like did I make an emotional decision and now this kid doesn't get care because somebody hurt Brandy's feelings you know where it's like you've offended me but now I need to apologize to you that weird psyche thing you have going on Mm -hmm. they did try to come back and I don't know if it really was because they realized they were wrong or really if it was just for the need of care right but I've had more encounters like that from my own culture. Mm-hmm. That is really interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. Especially thinking about because the Black community grows up with the same kinds of stereotypes and the same education. Yeah, we do. So. But then, um, you know, some culturally, we are, we tend to be skeptical of others. We want to be associated with the biggest company name, the bigger, oh, my kid is, you know what I mean? Because that's where the majority is going. And so we want to be associated with what the majority is already saying is okay. And so if I come through as a minority and as one that's not as well known, I'm not the big name for you to attach yourself to. And so I don't have the big label. I'm not a franchise. I'm not all of those things. I'm just showing up as Brandy. People don't, people, they want the bigger name. and. um so in our community, there is a lot of skepticism. And that's why a lot of Black-owned businesses sometimes struggle because people don't patronize it as much as they will a bigger name. Mm. So what ideas do you have to change the field in a direction of diversity and inclusion? I think one major thing that would help the field would be to have more ABA programs in historical Black colleges. To really go and push that. Like we get the psychology degree and there's an emphasis on a psychology degree, but many people know like just with a bachelor's in psychology, the employment, like you're going to have to go on and get extra credentials and certs. But if it were pushed there and people were being pushed in to seek the BCABA and those type programs, something that really gets you into time, something that can put you in the realm where you're learning more about these behaviors, where you can go back into the schools and teach these teach um and 
assist the schools with learning how to deal with many of the behaviors and developmental delays that come with these diagnoses. That would be amazing. So I think including us more in historical Black colleges, as well as making ABA coursework be a big part of education degrees. You know, how many first-year teachers get classes with children that have so many diagnoses and they're not prepared? Mm -hmm. They're not. And then they're judged on their first year of teaching their classroom management based on how well they manage the class, even though they had, you know, multiple kids with multiple needs without the aid. So I think we could really make this feel more diverse if more people had an opportunity across all ethnicities to learn more about it and have an opportunity to have more exposure and more exposure to the implementation. Mm -hmm. Crystal? Yeah, I never noticed, and I guess it, I never had to think about it, but the historically Black colleges don't have these type of programs that are approved by the board. I think that would be a phenomenal, huge, <laughs> a huge, yeah. because I found out about the field through a girl that was like working in it. And it just, I really feel like it fell into my lap. It was, I knew nothing about it. And even when I talk to people now, they know about autism, somewhat about autism. But then when I try to explain what I do, it's not even, oh, so you're a special needs teacher. No. Not exactly. Right. <laughs> no, I'm not a teacher. That is a hat that I do not want to wear. God bless them. They are doing a beautiful job. But there's just not a lot of awareness about what we do. And then when there is, it's bits and pieces pulled from maybe an article that was scanned or a YouTube video that was watched or, you know, a post that somebody made on social media. So I just think just as a whole and a field, just getting out the appropriate information to people, not only about autism, what it is, what it looks like, but, you know, ABA, what it is, what we do exactly. I think that's a huge thing. And like you were saying about the teachers, their first year or however many years, they really don't have a course that, or they may take like one course on, you know, special needs and it encompasses all of them and not something like that's very specific. And then they do get a kid in their class that has all of these things happening with them. The kid doesn't know. They feel chaotic on the inside because they don't know what to do with their little bodies. And then the teacher doesn't know what to do. And it just kind of, it just turns into a mess, for the lack of a better word, just because I don't think there's enough resources or enough information out there that's presented to them in a way that they can learn from. Right. And I'm also thinking about from the level of RBT, how can we encourage growth to further studies, to going on and getting your master's? Because I used to live in Oakland, California, where there's a pretty large Black community there. And at the agency where I was working, it was interesting to see the demographics between RBTs and BCBAs. A lot of the RBTs were minorities, some Black, some Hispanic, even some Southeast Asian. But a lot of the BCBAs or supervisory level positions were held by white people. When I would talk to some of the RBTs that I worked with and I would try to encourage them to go for it, yeah, you can do it. I went to school and I worked at the same time and I know it's hard, but you know, there are other factors involved just with socioeconomic status. And if they were to go and get their master's, 
a lot of people can't afford to just live off of a part-time salary. Do you have any thoughts about that? For me, and as it stands with guiding light concepts, I went back and I got my graduate certification through Capella University. And what I've done here, we have just under 20 employees here. And I was able to partner with Capella University. And so through my partnership with them, the staff that works here, which more than 50% of my staff is currently working towards BCBA or BCABA hours. So we really, really push it here. We try to get them in their courses together so they have a steady partner, a steady group, and we really cheerlead each other on. The partnership has allowed them to get the 10% discount on their courses and many of their application fees and things like that were waived. So I really have gone out to try to find ways to see what were some of the barriers that were preventing them from going further. And once they let me know what the barriers are, we've looked up different um, scholarship opportunities that are here. A lot of my staff, their parents are retired military and they've retired here. So they qualify for like the Hazelwood Act and those things. So just keeping my ear to the ground with other universities and things that's around here so that I stay in the know about scholarships so I can say, hey, Here's this opportunity for you. I will tell you that Capella University right now is offering a lot of free undergraduate courses. They're absolutely free that people can register, but that will count that those credits. You just need to sign up for the classes and you have, I think, uh, you have uh, four months to complete those classes. But those credits will transfer towards a bachelor's or a master's with their university. And so just staying in the loop, continuing. Because at first, Capella was like, no, ma'am, you do not have 500 employees. You will not be a partner. <laughs> they were like, oh, you want to be a partner? <laughs> Goodbye. And so <laughs> come back. Um, and I came back. And then I came back again. I kind of fell back some. And one of my employees called in. Anyways, it spurred this conversation with them. And now we have the partnership. And so being able to say, hey, I have a room full of people who not only work for me, they're striving to get to where I am. So when I'm talking to them as their leader, I can say, you know, hey, when you get in this position, you will understand this write up. When you get in this position, you will understand why that parent communication form really wasn't a good look. <laughs> like you can you'll go back because it'll be a look for you, not a look for Brandy. So inspiring them to see things, not just through the guiding like concept lens or through the Brandy lens of the, hey, this is going to be me one day lens. Yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> I'm also a Capella graduate. I did my master's program with them. So I'm happy to hear that they're giving back. Yay, I love Capella. <laughs> yes, they are giving back. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Thinking about autism awareness in the community, is there a stigma around having a disability within the Black community? I would definitely say from my perspective, I'm just guessing, Crystal, but I'm assuming I'm a little bit older than you. I would definitely say, yes, there is definitely a stigma around it in the Black community. We tend to want to think that a lot of, especially things that relate to behaviors and behavioral management and emotional regulation, that those are things that can be disciplined. Like you can discipline the autism out of a kid. And then we also have religion spirituality has a great emphasis in our community so that we could pray the autism out of a child. 
So with the combination of the prayer and the disciplining it out, a lot of times the, the needs go lacking and we don't go to the professionals that we need to, because in order to go to professionals, you might have to seek counseling. And a lot of people would rather refer to religion for their counseling. And so, you know, there's that conflict of psychology versus going to my pastor when maybe what we're talking about is a little out of your pastor's scope and your child. So there's gaps. So when we should be pushing that early intervention, we're not pushing that early intervention, we're disciplining and praying it out. And so now when we've reached the age where we cannot say that, oh, they're just little, we've reached the ages of eight and nine, we're trying to go back and mitigate behaviors that a kid had that has served them well for eight to nine years. And that Mm -hmm. makes it so much more difficult versus in other communities, they're looking for the signs and they don't care if it's two years old. They go and get what they need to get for their child right then. And they still go to church and they still discipline their kids. They think (laughs) you can do all three. So I I would say from my experience and my view, my vantage point that, yes, there is a stigma. And yes, it does hinder the effectiveness of care because it's hard to go back and undo many years of behaviors that have served the child well. Right, (laughs) right. I think in addition to there being a stigma, I just think that there's a lack of information. And so because of the lack of information, then there's a lack of resources. And because of the lack of resources, then people tend to fall back on, well, my kid's just bad. Or, you know, they just need to be disciplined or be on punishment or I'm going to take these things. And I think the reality is, is that there needs to be just a open forum about what is autism? What are these different autism spectrum disorders, what they look like and how do we move forward once we know, you know, that my child has this diagnosis or I'm concerned or just simply giving a family information about the developmental milestones or the top 10, you know, signs that your child may have, you know, an autism spectrum disorder. I just think that more information needs to be filtered, more solid, good information needs to be filtered into the Black communities and other communities outside of the, you know, the white areas. Because even some of the schools that I've been in, the teacher will say, well, the parents just drop them off at school. I can't get in touch with the mom or I can't get in touch with the dad. And it's just like, where's the communication being lost? And how can I, as a leader in the ABA community in my area, what can I do to help bridge that gap between, okay, clearly there's something going on with my kid. I don't know what to do. I have to go to work. I'm just going to send them to school. And then the teachers sometimes, in my experience, is some of the teachers, how do I say this? kind of push that kid off to the side because, well, when I send him home, they're not going to do anything with him anyway. Well, what can we do to help that situation? Don't go in there. You know, you need to do this. You need to do that. Find out where they're coming from. Find out what information that they do have. And as the teacher, as the BCBA, as the RDT, as the BCABA, whomever, how can you then help them? Like I said earlier, get to a place where their household is manageable because we never know what's going on when they get home, the stress level. We never, we don't know these things. And so I think it goes back to what I was saying before about being compassionate and empathetic to where someone is and then helping them get to where 
it's a manageable place for them and then a place for growth. I just think that information is being lost and not being filtered out like it should be. Well, there is a problem of the diagnostic tools and the majority of research being designed for white males. So I'm an avid reader. My mom is a librarian, so I'm like, I'm definitely an avid reader. (laughs) And there's a very famous book called Even the Rat Was White. I don't know if you guys have yet to see that, but it was written by Robert Guthrie. It's an amazing read so much that it's been written years ago and it still continues to sell out. So it's kind of hard to get copies of it, but it goes back to the historical view of psychology and how many of the theories across all, all the many domains of psychology, the many specializations within psychology and the viewpoints of African-Americans during that time. And so the vantage point to where African-Americans weren't even seen as humans or, you know, many testing tools that were used to say that we don't experience pain, that we don't understand trauma, that we don't have separation anxiety, those things that have manifested generationally due to slavery and many discriminational practices that we have experienced, it has minimized. So a lot of the psychology theories minimize the experiences that we have and how they manifest, how they affect us behaviorally, emotionally, mentally. And so now that we have these diagnostic tools, these diagnostic tools, they don't meet us where we are. They're not from the perspective which is our perspective. And so then once the data is analyzed, it's analyzing another person, not the child that's actually there because the measuring stick is not correct, you know? Mm -hmm. So that's when you get into that validity. Um, (laughs) validity, um, This is a big thing in the ABA. Yeah. So for us, there really isn't a tool that like where the testing was done, whether you're using... Ables or VB map, or you're using essentials for living. Some of the things that they're teaching in essentials for living are AFOLs. They assume that you have things in your house that a lot of a lot of people don't have. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> they're working on skill development for everybody doesn't have a dishwasher. Everybody doesn't have like there's a lot of assumptions that are in there. Just like hey, maybe you know, I like to pull some goals from them, but based on this, this client's uh, socioeconomic status, these goals won't actually fit. Now I have to go in and I have to tweak them and tweak them and tweak them and tweak them in a way that meets the child's need, but doesn't insult the family as well. Right. So someone should create that. Crystal, you and I, we need to jump on the market. (laughs) Pioneer it. (laughs) I am all about it. (laughs) I am 100% all about it. So from the point of diagnosis, let's say the family does get some information about autism. How accessible are services for Black families? You know, thinking like schools in underserved areas might not have the appropriate resources to help kids. They're very minimal. They're very minimal in my state. Right. Because even in our state, like you can only get the diagnosis through a developmental psychologist. Even if your pediatrician attempts to get the diagnosis, it's a temporary, it's not a permanent diagnosis because they're unable to do the additional testing like your ADOS and your IQ testing and all the rest of those, your SSR. So it's difficult for them because they can't even get to the diagnostician. Mm. That person is put up. That, you know, that is a field that's just not a lot of people in. So, and then those, a lot of those specialties only accept insurance. They're not private paying. If they were private paid, their rate would be a lot per test that's needed 
because there's so many tests needed to confirm an autism diagnosis. Some between five to seven different diagnostic tools outside of just the interview process. So the time to get all those tests done is three to four hours. The time that needs to be done. Is there one in your local area? So it's not readily available for the child to even initially get the diagnosis, which would afford them the opportunity for the care that comes along with it, like the IEPs and 504s that come with it. Assuming that it's even the right diagnosis, right? Like that it's not just called oppositional defiance or something. Yes. Right. Looking at the person's skin color and just assuming behaviors because of that. Right. Which those diagnoses take less diagnostic testing. And so many kids immediately get those oppositional defiance and conduct disorders because it's just one test and it doesn't require a a developmental psychologist. Mm -hmm. So the level of specialty needing to get it is is so much easier to get those diagnoses for African-American children, primarily males. Right. Mm -hmm. I also feel like there is still a stigma attached to when a little black kid acts up in class and they're just the bad kid versus looking at what other factors may be playing into this child's behavior. I haven't necessarily experienced it firsthand, experienced it firsthand, meaning seen it firsthand. It's just been conversations that I may have like overheard that really isn't meeting the family or the teacher's need. It's being put out there into like the universe, but then nothing is being done about it. Like we clearly know there's a problem. So what can we do about it versus just talking about it or overhearing conversations? And I think parents, when they do get the chance to get whatever diagnosis they have, they may be sent home with a pamphlet or like a list of clinics or, you know, companies that can potentially help, but there's no one there to guide them through the process. And with something like this, like someone's hand does need to be held and they do need to be walked through the steps because it's a lot of information in those evaluations and in the diagnosis. Right. And it's terminology being used that it's just it's hard to understand. Even sometimes I'm like, okay, time out. Let me go Google this part (laughs) to make sure that I'm understanding this right. But there's the danger in Googling too. Exactly. Exactly. Because then you might find out, you know, the horror stories of ABA. Yes. Oh goodness. And then just be turned away completely. So. Yeah, exactly. So I just think as a whole, there just needs to be a push for not only acceptance, awareness, resources and letting people know really no matter what color you are because I know we're specifically talking about you know black Americans and sometimes the socioeconomic status and you know where they're living but there's also white families in those situations there's other people of color in those situations that aren't afforded the opportunity to get the best resources available or the best services available so it's like we need to figure out a way to step into those areas and provide them with the best resources because they're just as deserving as anyone else. Right. All right, ladies, before we wrap up, I'd like to close with one last question. You're both very successful business owners and leaders in your communities. So what advice would you give to other business owners of autism centers who are trying to encourage diversity and maybe break stereotypes with their clients? My advice that I would give them is do the work. Yeah. Do the work that it takes 
we push so much on the importance of pairing with our clients and pairing with our families, but we need to pair with our staff. We need to pair with every, make sure that we pair with our community as a whole so that as we're pairing with it, we're more aware and we include it in our thought process, in our decision-making, in our leadership style, in the way that we manage our staff, in the way that we communicate with our staff. And so that we understand that the way that I communicate with employee A can't be the way that I include with employee B or parent A versus parent B. Those things do the work. It is, you know, sometimes, oh, it's exhausting. Yes, but to whom much is given, much is expected. And so you will have to do the work to learn these things so that you are putting not only your best foot forward, you're giving that other person the opportunity to have their best experience as well. And so I would say that that work looks different. That work may be you experiencing something you never experienced or trying a new food or something. It can be small. It doesn't mean like do a huge gesture, <laughs> you know, like I mean, it doesn't require a huge gesture. It may just require a conversation. Mm-hmm. And it requires when you go in that conversation, going with an open mind right. and do the work. It's like using ABA, setting realistic goals, starting small. Yeah. Contacting that reinforcement, working your way up. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Crystal, how about you? To add to that, I would even say making sure that who you are and what you are and what you provide is known in your community. Because I feel like oftentimes, you know, especially like the smaller businesses that are really powerful where they are, there's still not enough information about them or people don't know about, you know, not everyone knows about Believe Autism, you know, here in Jacksonville. And they're like, oh, so you're a dance school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we provide, yeah, we provide dance, but this is other things that we also provide. And just making sure that you have a really strong sense of not only who you are and what you are as a company, but who you are and what you are as a person. And as a leader, being able to self-reflect and self-examine because you never know. <laughs> Each day is different. Every single day is different. And then being able to adjust where you need to adjust and make yourself fit where it may be uncomfortable, but you know that it's your time and it's your place that you need to be. So, Yeah, that's great advice. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you both so much for your willingness to open up and be vulnerable and share your experiences with us. This has been such an informative and eye-opening conversation. And also thank you for all of your work that you've done and you're going to continue doing for our global autism community. We really appreciate both of you. And like I said earlier, I hope we can get back in the field soon and visit our partners around the world. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for the opportunity. Take care. Thanks for tuning in to Autism Knows No Borders. Practicing cultural humility is at the forefront of our values as an organization. We are constantly challenging our own assumptions and belief systems and striving to understand the factors that influence behaviors within cultures we work with. Brandy and Crystal exercise cultural humility in their workplaces by asking questions to build rapport with families. Staying curious can be an effective way to avoid defaulting to stereotypes. The same approach can be applied when discussing the complex realities of Black culture in the U.S. Hearing Brandy and Crystal's different and nuanced perspectives reminded me that we must treat people as individuals 
instead of assuming that one person's view is representative of their entire culture. Some of the responses were counterintuitive to what might sometimes be expected. For example, Brandy has often felt discriminated against by members of her own community, and Crystal has had to second-guess her own feelings of disconnection when stepping into other people's spaces. They both agree, however, that continuing to advance the field towards diversity could change how Black people are perceived in professional settings, sparing them the exhausting feeling that they constantly need to prove their competence. Making ABA courses more available in historically Black colleges would increase opportunities for students to pursue their BCBA certification. Brandy is taking action by seeking out scholarship opportunities for her staff, which reflects her emphasis on fostering growth within her company. Crystal is determined to provide her community with accurate information about autism and ABA. Just as we see at our partner sites, educating families about disabilities and making them aware of services available in their communities is crucial to ensuring they receive the help they need. Combining more trained professionals with more resources in underserved areas, stigmas can be broken and quality of life will be improved. Thanks for listening. Take care. Tune in each week for engaging conversations of how people across the globe are inspiring change and building community. You've been listening to Autism Knows No Borders, brought to you by the Global Autism Project. You can find Rachel's notes for this episode and learn more about today's guests at AutismKnowsNoBorders.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. By doing so, you'll be helping us increase awareness and acceptance of autism around the world.